All right, thanks, Elise. Good morning, Chapel Hill. Um, I want to thank you as well for being such an awesome choir. It was really good to hear you guys. Um, I get up front here, I get that mix of the band coming through the speakers and then you guys behind me, it kind of clashes where I'm sitting and um, I don't often get that chance to just listen to you guys. Your voice is just coming over me up front here. It was, that was beautiful this morning. God was pleased. He really enjoyed that. All right, um, we're going to get into the Bible again this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, you're going to need one to follow along with. And so if you don't, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along in. And if you do not have a Bible of your own right now, um, please keep the one that you're receiving from our ushers and take it with you. Um, It's an absolutely critical, essential, important book. And um, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about why and just how much it means to us. Um, backing up to last week, um, I want to just take a moment and say thank you to John Swanson for, for preaching last week. Thank you, John. Appreciated that an awful lot. <clears throat> Thrills my heart when an elder steps up and says, there's a message that God has laid on my heart that I think he wants me to preach. It's a pretty bold statement to make, and uh, I'm so glad that that's what uh, God laid on John's heart and, and how it came through to us last week. He talked about Jesus and Peter after the resurrection. He talked about that beautiful reinstating um, restoration kind of moment where Jesus spoke to Peter and drew him back in and helped him push through some of his failure, some of his insecurity, um, some of the, the guilt and regret and shame that I'm sure Peter had. And um, in that, then he commissioned Peter. He asked Peter to care for the church. He said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He called Peter into this incredible role of serving, of leading the church as it took root and and blossomed and took off for, for all of history. And then he told Peter that he was going to die. And he told him how he was going to die. And then he ended that restoration by bringing Peter back to the beginning. The very beginning of Jesus' relationship with Peter. Where Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And here after the resurrection, he says again, follow me, Peter. No matter what, follow me. No matter how or when you're going to die, no matter what is going to happen in your life, no matter what it's going to cost you to serve this church that I'm creating, that I'm building here, no matter what, follow me. And that would apply to all of the disciples, and it applies to us as well, church. Jesus says, follow me. So turn now in your Bibles to John chapter 21, John 21. We're going to look at verses 20 through 25 today. Um, Jesus just lovingly restored Peter, and then he reminded Peter that there was one thing that he was asking of him. He was asking Peter to follow him, and then he literally gave him the opportunity to do that physically. The two of them walked away from that place on the shore. They walked away, Jesus and Peter, and then this happened. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, 
If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among, abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. All right, let's talk for a bit about this final passage in the book of John. As I pointed out a couple weeks ago, this part of the book, what we see is chapter 21, was added on John's behalf by a family member or a friend or a fellow Jesus follower. John had likely died and this section of the book was added to finish the book off properly. John would have wanted this in the book. God wanted this in the book. And so here we are, Peter and Jesus are walking away and Peter, being Peter, Looks behind him, he was easily distracted. We kind of see that throughout his life. And he saw John following them, and that sets up the rest of the exchange between Peter and Jesus. Now John, as usual, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this, to me, is evidence that John had possibly already written this, but had not been able to include it in his book before he died. And beyond that is the inclusion of a detail, a memory. John recalls a moment that was both really personal and very difficult as well. Well, reminiscing about that evening 75 years earlier, John includes a detail of him leaning back against Jesus during the Passover meal that Jesus had shared with his followers before his arrest and his crucifixion. Now church, try to put yourself in John's place for a minute or at least try to imagine what John could possibly have been feeling as he looked back. He's looking back to a time when he was so young, younger than the rest of the disciples, chosen by Jesus nonetheless. And not just chosen as the, the token younger demographic representative, Jesus saw something in John that drew him very close to him. John remembered that place at the table. It was a special place. It was reserved for those closest to the host of whatever dinner it might have been. And there at the Passover, John reclined next to Jesus in the special seat, close enough to Jesus to casually lean back on Jesus as Jesus leaned back on John. John had hung on to that picture for 75 years now and he he wished to include this detail in his book, a, a book that would be read and studied by a church family in Egan, Minnesota, USA, far from the city of Ephesus where it was written so long ago. He had no idea. He just wanted to capture it all for others to see and experience. Now back to the scene John was describing. Peter had been told by Jesus that he was going to be killed when he got older. And oh, and by the way, he'd be killed by crucifixion. We're going to cut Peter some slack here. You or I would also be likely to say, looking behind us, what about this guy? Surely I'm not the only one who's going to be killed, right? 
Fair enough, but not trusting enough. And that's the powerful lesson in here for us. It's a trust lesson. I think Peter knew that his life was in Jesus' hands. He trusted Jesus in many ways, even to the point of stepping out of a boat onto the water. That's trust. And be honest, is this, this Peter walking on water thing as hard for you to wrap your head around as it is for me? It was crazy, but it's not what we're talking about this morning. The point is that God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. You and I are not the best choices for determining God's will for other people. We're not. Think about this. Did Jesus make a mistake in determining the path for Peter or for John? Think about their part in establishing the first century church. Add Paul to the mix and you got quite a plan unfolding. What about the three of them, Peter, John, and Paul, and their contributions to the New Testament? Add Luke to that now, and once again, there's this amazing plan unfolding. God knows what he's doing. Now, what about us? Do we trust God with the lives of the people we know, like we trust him with Peter or John's life, we see all that evidence in Peter and John's lives. Do we trust the people around us, the people close to us? Do we trust God with their lives? Why would it be any different than trusting Peter or John to God? Well, likely because we can't see the whole picture. We can see John's picture we can see Peter's picture, but I can't see Liam's picture. I can't see Jude's picture. I can't see Asher's picture. My, my boys, my sons, that's different, right? No, it's not. Peter couldn't see John's picture. He had just learned some alarming details of his own picture but he couldn't see John's and he wondered whether or not John was going to get the kind of treatment that he, that Peter would be content with. That's not very trusting. After all, Peter obviously knew just how close John was to Jesus. He knew Jesus must have had a plan for John as well. And so Peter falls into the comparison trap that the disciples may have fallen into once or twice before. But back to us because this isn't just a story for way back then. I think this is for us. Even these few verses that talk about Peter's concern that John would also die some horrible death when he got older. Here's what I'm hearing. Even if I'm only hearing it for me, here's what I'm hearing. I am being asked by God through John to pray for God's will to be done in the lives of the people that I care about. What Peter may have missed here was the opportunity to affirm Jesus' plan for John, whatever that may be. Not to question what it was, not to suggest something that would make him feel better about his own future. What I might be missing myself is the opportunity to pray for God's will to be done in the life of somebody close to me. Rather than compare and contrast my life to someone else's, which we do, admit it, I need to hear Jesus say, whatever my will is for him, what's that 
to you. You follow me. I need to trust in every situation or relationship that God's will is best for that person, not mine. And so I need to entrust that person to God's will for their lives. And then, you know what I need to do. I need to follow Jesus. That's God's will for my life. So can I encourage you to try something? We seem to have too big of a struggle with praying for each other on the level of spiritual brothers and sisters. What's ironic is that we're going to be brothers and sisters forever. One day we're going to know each other on a level that we've never experienced before. And we know that. God's word shows us that. So why is this so hard? We know that Jesus prayed for us to be one like he and his father are one and we know that the spiritual bond that we share is our adoption into God's family. God is our father. God is our king. God is our Lord. That defines us, all of us. So why not try this while we're still waiting for the return of Jesus? How about praying for God's will to be accomplished in each other's lives? It's so generic it can't be threatening, right? I would challenge you to talk to somebody that you know well or maybe someone that you don't know all that well yet and ask them if the two of you can commit to praying for God's will to be done in each other's lives. There's no pressure in that and there's no room for your own suggestions or expectations. Just mean it. Trust God's will for each other, church. Jesus told Peter in response to his question about John, never mind him. I'm his Lord as well. I have my own plans for him that you shouldn't be so concerned with. Peter, you follow me. Church, you follow Jesus. Paul McVitie, you follow Jesus. And Imagine if that's what we were all focused on and devoted to. Following Jesus, don't you think we'd bother each other a whole lot less? There are enough people on the trail with Peter, John, and Jesus that things were overheard, passed along, and maybe blown out of proportion. Soon enough, a rumor had spread about the idea that John was not going to die until Jesus returned to restore the earth at his second coming. That speculation came from someone hearing Jesus tell Peter that it may be his will for John to live until he returns. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying simply that if it was his will, John could live that long. He wasn't saying that it was his will, just that it could be. Jesus could do anything, and Peter needed to trust him. We need to trust him. Then in verse 24, we can see some affirmation of the idea that someone else was finishing putting John's words into his book for him. This was more a new perspective for me because I never read it before this way. Read this. Hear this as if someone else were adding it as verification. I don't think this is John speaking. 
think it's the person, the person who finished assembling John's book. Verse 24. Verification. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Of course it's true. John saw it and John wrote it down and we, Chapel Hill Church, have been blessed to have it in our hands. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who was in the inner circle of Jesus' life, the disciple whom Jesus brought with him as a young teenager and invested dramatically in teaching and mentoring, the disciple who stood by Jesus all the way to the cross. This is John. These are his words, and his words are true. The last verse in John's book is verse 25. John uh, teases us a bit here. He reminds us that there were so many more things that Jesus said and did and taught. He humbly knows that his book is just one account. He himself was well aware of the other accounts of Jesus' life from Matthew and Mark and Luke. That's why he left a lot out of his book. It didn't need to be there. Those other stories were already well known. So let's put this ending to the book in perspective. John states that if everything Jesus did was written down, there wouldn't be enough room in all the world to contain what was written. Now, of course, this does not mean that John had calculated all the available space on the face of the earth. Nor is this statement to be written off in light of the way technologies made it possible for information to be stored in such an incredible way. But my mind went in a few directions here. I thought about all the time in Jesus' life that we don't read about. We have that gap between when he was about 12 and when he started his ministry at about 30. I'm not even considering that. What I'm looking at is the book of John. There are big gaps in the narrative. They're there. There are time periods when Jesus was traveling and he was very busy wherever he went. There are so many more miracles and healings and signs. There are countless hours of teaching time that Jesus must have had with his disciples and with others along the way. There's the time he took to be with his father. There's an incredible amount of time and not one second of it was wasted. My mind also goes to the writing side of things. There are a lot of books about Jesus that have been written over the ages. I think about the libraries that I've visited at various Christian colleges and seminaries. I think about the bookstores that I've spent hours in. I think about how hard it is for me to visit online stores like Christian book distributors and not spend more money than I need to gathering resources. I think about my own library in my office. I think about the church library. Did you know that we have a library? (laughs) It's down the hall, right down here. I think about the world of sermon writing. Think about all the sermons that are online and and the fact that I don't feel the need or the desire to copy someone else's sermon. Some think I'm nuts for not doing that, for not just grabbing a sermon online and preaching that. I write my own because I believe that God speaks directly to this church. I think about my father, 
the 81-year-old pastor, who I've never heard preach the same sermon twice, and he's been preaching for over 50 years. I think about all the preachers all over the world, and how many sermons are preached on any given Sunday globally, and yet I can still preach on the book of John for over a year and never run out of new things that I see and learn. And that, brothers and sisters, is just working with what we know from the Gospels and the historical writings about Jesus and his life. That's special. So I agree with you, John, the world could never contain it all. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that John's original ending was not actually the end of chapter 21 that we read today. He ended his book sooner and chapter 21 was included likely after John's death by somebody else. So what was the real ending? We skipped over it when we looked at chapter 20. I want you to turn there now. This is John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. This is widely regarded as the original ending and the purpose of John's book. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John speaks specifically here to the signs that Jesus gave the world. He's talking about things like Jesus turning water into wine, healing the sick, restoring, restoring sight to the blind, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, those kinds of things. John says there are more. I believe that. But these ones that John recorded were recorded for a purpose. And what was that purpose? so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in Jesus' name. So can I ask you something? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that God sent Jesus out of love for his creation to be the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world, your sin, my sin? Do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Do you agree with Peter when he identified Jesus and boldly stated, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Do you believe that Jesus turned the water into wine, healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, made the lame walk, raised the dead, walked on water, fed the 5,000 with only five loaves and two fish? Do you believe that Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and rose from the grave alive on the third day? Do you believe, church? Then John would be pleased. He did what he was called by God to do. He was invited to follow Jesus. He followed Jesus. 
He walked with Jesus and he wrote down exactly what God directed him to write through God's Holy Spirit in John. And what John wrote down was protected by God throughout the millennia so that it could reach you and me today. How blessed we are to have received such a gift. But John didn't just stop by stating that our belief was his goal. He wrote that by believing, we would have life in Jesus' name. This is the life that Jesus mentioned in John 10, 10. It's abundant life. It is life that is full, full to the point of overflowing. And how do we get that life? We believe. John 3.16 says whoever believes in Jesus receives eternal life, receives this life. And how do we live this life? We do what Jesus told Peter. Follow me. Trade in your strength for my sovereignty. Stop trusting in your morality and trust in my mercy. Exchange your pursuits and priorities for my will. Lay down your comfort and take up your cross. Jesus invites us to live. God sent his son Jesus. When the time had come, Jesus chose his disciples and John was one of them, an unlikely choice. As John walked with Jesus, God etched those experiences on John's brain and on his heart. 75 years after it happened, God's spirit nudged John and led him to sit down in his old age and write He wrote a book for the residents of a city called Ephesus. The remains of the library where John's book would have been made available are still there today. And so John wrote. Blindly, no. John wrote so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have eternal, abundant life in Jesus' name. And, miraculously, over a year ago, God's Spirit nudged a Canadian pastor living and serving in Minnesota to open that book again and lead his church through the experience of reading it, hearing it, studying it, and being deeply affected by it. God opened the eyes of that church family to see, to believe, and to receive the life that Jesus came to give us. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of the book of John. I want to invite you to be here again next week if you can. We're going to celebrate. We're going to sum up, and we're going to answer the question, so what? This journey through John was no accident. It was nothing to be taken lightly. It was God's word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth.
Amen. I'm going to invite the ushers and the worship team to come now and help us close the service as we worship together. I'm going to ask a favor of you. Um, tonight, here in this room, is our uh, senior banquet where we recognize our high school grads, and they're going to, there's going to be a banquet in this room. If you can hang around for a few minutes after the service and clear these chairs, stack them up in stacks of six and move them off to the side, that would really help us get a start on getting things set up for this evening. I would appreciate that a lot. Will you pray with me now? I want you in this moment as you're just focused on God right now, I, I, want you to, I want you to talk to him. Is there anything that you'd like to say to him regarding what's happened in the last one year plus as we have taken a journey through the book of John? Do you want to just go ahead and thank him for getting that book to us? For how privileged we are to have John's book in our hands. How privileged we are to have available to us and to be able to freely read, listen, study, absorb and put into practice things that were witnessed by someone so close to Jesus. What do you want to tell God about that? Do you need to tell God again this morning or maybe for the first time God, I do believe. And tell him, tell him that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is his one and only son. Do you need to talk to him about maybe the reality that you do believe but you're not living the life that Jesus brought you and commit to that this morning. Take the step that you need to take. Father, you know you know about all the time that you and I have spent over the last year looking at this book together. You know all those times when I've just closed the book and sat back and sighed or 
shook my head. Sometimes just cried because because Jesus is there. Thank you for your words to us. Thank you for John and his life, for how you sustained him, you gave him strength in the midst of all that was happening around him as he watched all the other disciples die for their faith. Thank you for protecting that book for 2,000 years and bringing it to us, to this church for guiding us by your spirit to see what you wanted us to see, to hear what you wanted us to hear. Father in heaven, we believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is your son. And we embrace the life that he came to give us. Thank you for that life. Thank you for the word. Your word become flesh. Thank you for the gifts that you have given us, the truth that you've shown us, the love that you've poured out on us. We are eternally grateful you've chosen to draw us that close to you to give us a first hand look at Jesus Christ we love you and we praise you in his name in the name of the Christ in the name of Jesus your son